Let's take it back to 1956 and 1957 to observe the original formation of the Buffett Partnership Limited, founded by Warren Buffett, which was a vehicle that he used to accumulate much of the wealth that he's went on to achieve, charging typical fees of two and twenty-five, and allowing him to initially take a activist role. In terms of his investments in companies like Dempster Mill, in which he installed his own management team to add more operational efficiency, Berkshire Hathaway was eventually acquired, allowing the the partnership to become more like a holdings company, in which Berkshire Hathaway was able to provide the insurance premiums. That were critical for him to utilize the capital for future investments. Buffett is typically known for investing in companies like Coca-Cola and and Geico, and that's heavily covered by many people in in the markets and in the media. But what is Not understood is that Buffett is actually very much engaged in entrepreneurial activities, providing seed capital. He also places complex, effectively bets in derivative markets, bond markets, and is not necessarily a pure stock picker.、Um, if you take a look at his portfolio, you'll see that stocks make up only twenty eight percent of Berkshire's enterprise value as of two thousand and thirteen, despite being very famous for investing in. Coke, American Express, and, and Moody's—they only account for eight percent of the total market cap. So, if you take a look at some of Buffett's more famous、uh, purchases, you'll notice that they weren't even traditional. For example, they were more distress acquisitions, such as American Express and the deal that he achieved with Goldman Sachs and, and General Electric in two thousand and eight. He effectively demanded a five-year warrant deal that paid him off quite handsomely. So sometimes when you're thinking about Warren Buffett and his long-term value plays, you need to take a look and understand what is happening in terms of the the entity that he has created for himself and the way that he has operated in in investing. And and speculating in some sense on on market positions, so I think what would be really interesting to start off what I've already labeled as value investing week was to highlight one of the books that Warren Buffett has declared number one on his reading list on his annual shareholder letter to investors in about two thousand and twelve, which is called The Outsiders. I've had the luxury of sitting down to speak with the author about this. Book some of the concepts in it, and you'll start to even understand that this is not some of the things that are typically spoken about when analyzing Warren Buffett's approach to investing. You're not necessarily talking about companies that are quote unquote cheap, but we're actually talking about things such as economic goodwill, which is extremely undercovered、um, by the press and the media. So I hope you enjoy this this new. Um, interview, and I hope you can appreciate what we're going to try to deliver for you through the course of this week, which I label as Value Investing Week. So, 
Thank you. You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. I'm here with uh, Will. Um, Will, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, so uh, my name is Will Thorndike. I'm a, a private equity investor by profession, and I'm uh, the author of a, a recent book uh, called The Outsiders, uh, which looks at eight, uh, eight CEOs with exceptional records and uh, tries to look at patterns across, uh, across their, their actions. Will, you're kind of uh, downplaying this book because actually it's number one on Warren Buffett's recommended reading list in 2012. Um, Could you give us a little bit more of a a synopsis on on what you looked at in terms of these CEOs? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Peter, I think the best analogy for the book is duplicate bridge. Do you play bridge? No, I don't, actually. Tell me about it. Yeah, so I, well, I, I'm uh, I'm not a great bridge player, but bridge uh, duplicate bridge is an advanced form of bridge in which a group of teams of two show up in a room and they're then divided into tables of four, each of which is then dealt the exact same cards in the exact same sequence, so eliminating the role of luck. Okay. And at the end of the evening, the, at the end of the evening, the team with the most points wins. So it's designed to be a pretty pure test of skill. Uh-huh. And I would contend that that over long periods of time in an industry, um, it's duplicate bridge. All of the firms in the industry are dealt effectively the same hand, and so if one company materially outperforms the peers, that's worthy of study. And so all of the each of the eight CEOs in the book fit that pattern. They had to meet you know they had to meet two tests. They had to have better performance relative to the S and P five hundred than Jack Welch had during his tenure at GE. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the absolute absolute test, and then they had to crush their peer group. They had to have meaningfully better performance than their peers. So on average, they outperformed the S and P by twenty fold, and their peer group by seven fold. And so, it, you know, sort of by definition, in order to have that sort of outperformance, they had to be doing things differently than their peers. But it turned out that the specific actions they were taking were remarkably similar across the group. And so the book centers on that on that pattern. That's so interesting because in Asia there's a game called uh, Go, which is um, kind of like the Western equivalent to chess, uh, whereas chess pieces actually there's different um, strengths for very dis- various different pieces in Go, which uses basically white chips and black chips, and it's about a game of surrounding, and it's very similar to what you described about in terms of a game of attrition. You're actually trying to... Um, surround your opponent uh, in an even playing field with the same number of pieces and just placing them strategically within the board. So that was um, mm-hmm. that's that's a very interesting uh, analogy that you just provided. Um, I've also seen the same stuff in in Moneyball, which Michael Lewis talks about. He talks about competing actually in an unfair market in which you know you have teams like the New York Yankees, which. You know they have a, a significant um, a spending budget or, or a salary cap, for example. Whereas you know these underdeveloped teams um, have less of a budget, and they have to find innovative ways to compete. So that's a fantastic analogy. Um, in, in terms of the the basically these CEOs 
could could you 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 mentioned to me about like the criteria of beating the S and P five hundred, but what were the the variables, for example, that made these CEOs exceptional? Yeah, so uh, you know, there's the the pattern tended tended to center on um, uh, capital allocation, or I guess I'd more more broadly describe it as resource allocation. So. Um, most significant piece of that is is how a CEO chooses to allocate the firm's profits. So basically, you know, the, the framework there is for a CEO to be successful in the long term, they have to do two things well. They have to optimize the profits of the business they're running. They then have to invest those profits. And that second activity has the somewhat unwieldy name of capital allocation. And over long periods of time, it has a disproportionately large impact on shareholder returns. And so basically, there are only three ways that a business can raise capital. They can tap their profitability, they can raise debt, or they can sell equity. And there are only five things they can do with it. They can you know, invest in their existing operations, mm-hmm. they can buy another company, they can pay down debt, they can repurchase their shares, and they can pay dividends. So that's it. And so over long periods of time, the decisions CEOs make across those three sources and those five uses of capital have a giant disproportionate impact on uh, on long-term results. And this group just made very different decisions in that area than, uh, than their peers did. So in terms of these allocations of capital, do you have like a, a ranking system, for example, based on where the company is in terms of growth? Because obviously there's some companies that are going to be looking for ways that they can stimulate organic growth. There's some mature businesses um, that are providing, you know, significantly more attractive shareholder yield. So how do you kind of like determine or rank the the allocation of capital, say, for example, on a real-time basis when you're listening to quarterly earnings of companies? And, and is this more about an assessment on the CEO's capability to think almost like an investor? Yes. Uh, so the short answer is to to, to the um, to your question is yes. I think the the key is that the CEO be um, analytical and um, and rigorous in how they think through the various alternatives. And you're right. The, the attractiveness of those various alternatives will vary with every company's stage of stage of development and growth and situation. So when a company is Early on in its development, the opportunity to allocate capital towards internal operations, towards internal growth, will be is likely to be very compelling. As the business matures, that alternative will become less compelling, and other alternatives, like buying other companies or repurchasing their own stock or paying a dividend, you know, will increase in attractiveness. And, and they all need to be weighed against each other, you know, on sort of a risk reward basis. And then, you know, the CEO needs to be just rational in how they choose among them. Based on your study, would you argue that there are different um, suitable CEOs for a particular company at different phases of the company as well? Or have you found examples where, say, an individual took a startup, um, was able to, to grow the business, go into public markets, and successfully maneuver the company throughout the whole history of that company? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is that I think the mindset applies across the various stages in a company's development. And sort of the the first CEO that I profiled, the first you know the the 
uh, sort of progenitor of the whole book is a guy named Henry Singleton, who built a company called Teledyne from, you know, starting in the early 60s into the 1990s. And he was the founder from the, you know, founder uh, from the startup phase. And he ran it, you know, through to the, um, into the early 90s, almost 30 years. Uh, you know, so I think the most important thing is whether it's a company that has is in a rapid growth mode or in a mature um, or even declining uh, situation that the CEO be, be themselves intimately involved in these decisions and that they be conservative and analytical and rigorous in how they think about them. And and what about, because as you've seen, there's been a lot of famous CEOs, you use this example about like Jack Walsh, maybe modern day examples like Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, is there a way that, or have you found examples in which a CEO almost effectively acts like a, almost like a cult of personality and has successfully maneuvered the the, the financials of the company in in um, you know savvy way. So like when we take a look at Facebook and their acquisition of companies like Instagram for like a billion dollars, d- does this stuff kind of rub you the wrong way from an investment perspective? You know, I think you know in business, I think you have occasional unique geniuses, mm-hmm. and I think. Steve, you know, Jobs and Zuckerberg fall into that category, and um, it's it's not something that you know, um, you know, a, an ordinary typical CEO of a public or private company can emulate. You know, the sort of um, technical or marketing capabilities. I think I'd put Sam Walton and Herb Kelleher in that that same category in terms of their marketing expertise. So I think you get occasional unique geniuses who can you know create from scratch, you know, uh, large businesses. And that's a, but it's a, I think that's a different, it's just a different um, situation than most businesses face. And I think, you know, if you look at the capital allocation decisions that those CEOs end up making as their companies mature, you know, if you look at the acquisitions that, um, you know, that Facebook is looking at now, I, th- I think now they, they need to be, you know, they need to be applying these principles. And often those principles and that mindset are, are very different than the, um, you know, the expertise on the technical and marketing side that, you know, that built the businesses. So I think it's very hard for technology companies often to make that transition. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I get a sense that even if you take the whole genius component, you take the you know the ten thousand hours to achieve significant mastery. It's more about say, for example, their understanding about information technology. But when when you're involved with capital markets, I notice in that your book you you kind of discuss about the the role that the CEO should have in terms of like you know their relationship with the financial officer, how their treasury is being utilized. Could you elaborate more about that role where it shouldn't just be sheerly like, um, you know, strict allocation to that task to a CFO and where the CEO actually needs to have greater oversight to that to some extent as well? Yeah, I think it's it's critical that the CEO not delegate key financial decision-making and analysis to his finance team, to the CFO and the finance team. I think it's important that the CEO themselves be actively involved in that process and have the, you know, the, the basic analytical ability to, you know, to help, to help drive that process. 
And is there any instances in which we've seen a CEO successfully maneuver um, the balance sheet and capital allocation as you still have kind of like a forward uh, marketing uh, call to personality CEO? Um, well, listen, I, you know, the, the companies you mentioned have all been extremely successful. And um, in terms of, you know, this, uh, Apple and Facebook, I mean, those are, those are exceptional businesses and, you know, have, have been, have been well run. Have they optimized the capital allocation part of the piece of the equation? I, you know, and I'm not intimately familiar with either company, but my guess is they've, they've not fully optimized for that, but, but they haven't needed to, uh, to this stage in their development. You know, I think you can look at a at a, an even more mature technology business like Microsoft, and you can make the argument that you know they, they have um, missed some capital allocation opportunities over the last you know five to ten years um, as they you know continued to devote capital to research and development and have you know have have not been as active in looking at repurchasing shares or you know paying special dividends or other alternatives they might have. Again, I've not studied those mm-hmm. situations, but I do I do think the skill sets are um, you know are somewhat different and the situations are somewhat different. So say say you're you're trying to quantify a screen for some of the the aspects you're referring to in terms of capital allocation. What what kind of um, metrics would I be looking at? Is it free cash flow, retained earnings? What what would I be considering in terms of a, a good capital allocator from a, a you know financial analysis perspective? Yeah, well, I think you know again, I think relative performance is a key marker, right? So if the, if the CEO has been in the seat for more than five years, mm-hmm. um, certainly as much as ten years, I think you can look at the performance of their stock, the per share performance relative to the peer group, and that's a you know, I think that's a, a marker. I think you can look at signals like, you know, have they been significant repurchasers of their stock? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what of the of the acquisitions that they've made? How have they performed relative to um, the expectations that management you know laid out at the time of the acquisition? Have they met, exceeded, or fallen short of those? Uh, how you know have they considered special dividends? Are they using leverage? You know, just just sort of looking systematically at these at these decisions retrospectively. I think you can get a very strong sense for kind of thought process on the part of a, a CEO and management team earlier earlier on. And you know, when a CEO is earlier in their career, I think you have to look to more qualitative signals like um, you know, sort of metrics and and vocabulary and i think those can actually be quite telling but they're they're earlier Mm, very interesting so you you mentioned to me offline that you've seen some very interesting examples of as of late would you be willing to share some of those examples to the audience yeah no i think there are a number of companies that um are are pursuing you know these this sort of approach these principles currently um public companies and you know uh, a list of those would include a company called Transdime, um, which is a remarkable business in the aviation components industry. Um, a company called Valiant Pharmaceuticals, I believe, uh, is going to end up 
uh, qualifying, although the CEO there is still fairly earlier in their early in their tenure. They've been in the seat about five years, um, but that's a very interesting business. Much in the news recently as they tried to take over uh, another another pharmaceutical company um, at the end of last year called Allergan. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I think you've, if you look at um, what the Rails brothers have done at Danaher and more recently at Colfax, um, there's uh, uh, among the large energy companies, Exxon's record in this area is just extraordinary over a long period of time. Mm. Um, you know, there's a, a reinsurance company called Arch Re that's done an excellent job in this area, a home builder called NVR. A Canadian software company called Constellation Software, and a group of sort of niche insurance businesses that have followed sort of a Berkshire Hathaway type model with with very you know very good results over the last you know ten to twenty years. A company called Markel and one called Fairfax and one called White Mountains. Have you um, um, had a chance? You know, to so that's a. At... Sorry, go on. No, no, I think that's a pretty good pretty good list. Uh, what are your thoughts on Sears Holdings? Did, have you had a chance to take a look at like what Am- Eddie Lambert's doing? Uh, you know, I haven't looked in detail at that. I think you know what um, Eddie Lampert did at at uh, AutoZone is extraordinary and speaks for itself, and is a, an excellent example of these principles at work. Sears Holdings, I've not followed as closely, and it's just a, a, an industry and business that I don't know as well. I think it's it's interesting. You know, he's. You know, he's pursuing a you know an aggressive strategy there, and um, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Who's the best CEO in your opinion within the last fifty years? Yeah, that's a tough question. And why? Uh, and why? So, that's the key question, right? Okay. Yeah. So I would say that um, I mean this this year is um, Buffett's fiftieth year as you know in the CEO seat at Berkshire Hathaway, and it's just impossible to ignore the long term record there. It, I mean, it's truly extraordinary. Um, so, you know, he, he's, he's got to be at the head of the list. I think, you know, in that same super elite category, I would put, you know, two other CEOs kind of neck and neck with, uh, with Warren Buffett. Um, one would be John Malone, you know, mm-hmm. who has done an extraordinary job over a long period of time, first at TCI and over the last 15 or 16 years at um, the various Liberty Media entities and diaspora, just extraordinary long-term returns. Um, and then Henry Singleton, who I mentioned before, who's really sort of the the pioneer of a lot of these concepts and, um, you know, just put up an extraordinary record over almost 30 years at, uh, at Teledyne, the company I mentioned earlier. Regarding Buffett, I've actually heard some criticism about how he's handled his, his investment in um, Coca-Cola, for example, and Coca-Cola not being, uh, you know, having changed their capital allocation strategy. And I've also heard the same criticism towards IBM, for example, like, you know, if IBM's going out doing a lot of share buybacks, being able to borrow at low interest rates, but but where's the growth? So it, it, what are your thoughts on some of that, that criticism? Yeah, so I can't say that I have that I have intimate familiarity with either company or situation. I think in the case of Coca-Cola, that was a compensation-related criticism. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, my understanding is that, um, you know, that Buffett weighed in quite strongly and ended up, you know, I mean, what ended up happening there is that the board ended up um, uh, re-withdrawing and um, 
reconstituting the equity plan there in the base of shareholder concerns. And my understanding is Buffett played a key role in bringing that about. He just did it in a quieter, more offline fashion, which I think is more his style than some of the activists now. Um, So, you know, I think they ended up in a place that that makes a lot of sense for shareholders there. I think the original proposal was, um, you know, was on the aggressive side, you know, from from shareholders' perspective, but I think there was a there was a revision there, and I think Buffett was a key catalyst in that. Just you know, quietly, um, as it relates to IBM, I think the jury's still out. Honestly, I think it's too early. I mean, this is true generally with buybacks. It's really hard to evaluate buyback returns over short periods of time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you looked at Henry Singleton, has probably the best uh, buyback record of of any CEO ever in terms of the amount purchased and the IRRs of those purchases, but at any point in time over the first three to five years after each of those repurchases, they, they looked, at different points in time, they looked um, very poor. Um, so I think you really have to take the long view in evaluating those decisions, and we just don't have enough time. And the short-term results at IBM, I, you know, I understand, have been disappointing. But I think the long-term thesis may very well still be intact there. And if so, allocating capital to, to buybacks, given the amount of free cash I believe that business generates could be could be an excellent decision. I just think it's it's too early to tell. But also, Will, who are we to assess? Um, you know, the quality, the magnitude of quality of capital allocation, because you effectively have to think about things like the business cycle and who knows what what the CEO's thinking to some extent relative to what you understand. Say, for example, if people believe that rates are going to be going up in the not-too-distant future sometime this year, doesn't that have some kind of impact also? And no one really has that crystal ball, and everyone's just basically, you know, this whole environment of quantitative easing has basically been, you know, everyone just is dancing until the music stops. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, well, you know, in answer to the question again, I don't think you can you can have a definitive point of view on um, the decisions, capital allocation decisions a CEO makes until you know a reasonable point into the future, right? Until you you see how that plays out. In the interim, all you can do so you can look retrospectively at decisions a CEO made, and you can you can have a you can have a point of view on how effective, a very clear, data driven point of view on how effective those decisions were. In the shorter term, I think you have to listen carefully to the logic and decide for yourself whether it whether it resonates and whether it makes sense. And what's interesting is to look for CEOs who are doing things differently than their peers. You know, taking taking actions and capital allocation that are different than their peers, and then listen to the rationale and see if it resonates. And occasionally you're gonna find situations where a CEO is doing something very different. Than the peer group, and it might be in the area of buybacks, it might be in the area of acquisitions, it might be in the use of leverage, it might be in dividends, you know. But and then understand if the way they're they're describing that makes sense, and then evaluate over time how the how that plays out relative to relative to their projections and expectations. So you mentioned that you also do private equity as well. Is there any difference to assessing? Um, outsider CEOs in, in the private equity space relative to, to publicly uh, listed companies? Yeah, that's a good question. So in, in private equity, the situation is fundamentally different in one important way, which is that typically in private equity, 
the investor, you know, in my firm and in our case, controls the company. Mm-hmm. And so if, if the investor in that case isn't happy with the capital allocation decisions, they can replace the CEO, right? So there, there isn't, it's just a different dynamic than exists in public companies. Now, that being said, capital allocation is critical and the, the private equity investor tends to be uh, much more involved in those decisions than public market investors typically are mm-hmm. since the you know, partners at the firm are typically on the board, often controlling the board. So there's a there's a closer link there. Uh, there's less of a you know less of an agency risk, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that being said, it remains a critical it, it remains a critical component of value creation for private equity firms as it is for you know for publicly traded companies. Um, I think the alternatives and the priority vary a bit between private equity backed businesses and public companies. Um, and I can go into that if that's of interest. But but I think um, that's the primary difference is the the control by the investors. Sure. If you, if you could just give us a little dabble on, on what, what your thoughts are on that, that would be great. Yeah. So I think, you know, in private equity, decision-making for capital allocation is generally pretty rational. Um, I think where, where it um, can fall apart a bit is it can tend to overemphasize debt pay down. Uh, and well, it can overemphasize the use of leverage in the acquisition, and then the the pay down of debt as a capital allocation alternative going forward. Um, and then, secondly, I think often there's an incentive on the part of private equity investors as they approach the time when they may sell the company after they've been in it for three or four years, when they may choose to underinvest in um, operations, yeah. you know, in internal growth opportunities to optimize near-term cash flows in advance of an exit, right? So, you know, also in private equity, another difference is it's harder generally to repurchase shares. Often there just aren't other investors who are, who are, uh, you know, owners and and candidates to to buy shares from. And secondly, you know, those, those investors tend to be less likely to sell than, you know, the incremental investor in the public market. One more question. I know we're almost running out of time here, Will, but I got to ask, pick your brain on this one is in Asia, um, a lot of companies, for example, for them to get financing and and leverage, they actually usually have to provide um, hard assets as as collateral in order to do so. So many um, companies like in China, um, Vietnam, for example, they what they tend to do is they actually tend to allocate and, and acquire um, as many hard assets as possible, primarily real estate, for example. And the issue is that, say, for example, it's a, a fantastic operating business. They're uh, you know, creating garments, for example, and they're buying a whole bunch of real estate in order to get potential financing in the future. It actually, the banking system itself kind of dictates some of the decisions and capital allocation decisions that the CEOs make. And the issue is that when, you know, some of these companies or if there's like a real estate glut, then boom, all these companies are immediately affected. So how much do you think the, you know, banks play a role in in how a, com- a CEO is strategically planning out capital allocation? Yeah, well, I, I'm not familiar with the Asian situation, and that 
situation as you describe it, I mean, that's, that is leading to, you know, suboptimal uh, decision-making and capital allocation in those companies if they are actively pursuing ownership of real estate assets to attract leverage. That's, that sounds to me as though that's, um, that's very dangerous and, um, and not very rational. Um, you know, I think in the, in the U.S., you have a you know, more developed, more sophisticated banking market than the one you just described, and, and one where lenders really do understand increasingly uh, over the last 20 years the, the value and security of lending against recurring cash flow streams, you know, exactly. not just hard assets. And so I think the best capital allocators are, you know, under, are active users, active but prudent users of leverage. Um, particularly in businesses that have very predictable cash flows, um, a number of you know there, there are a number of examples in the book of, of CEOs who whose businesses had those types of cash flows and who you know um, were very successful in optimizing the use of um, the use of leverage around them. Yeah, I often talk about like the you know the structural. Um, environments in terms of you know what creditors are willing to provide you, what the capital markets are like, which also affect the, the behavior of the CEO. Because if you have a bank that's like kind of like slapping your hand and saying you can't do this, or if they're saying okay, if you do this, I'll give you this, it really does have an impact on the company. Because even if it was a fantastic operating business generating tons of uh, reoccurring cash flows, and if they're just saying, "Hey, we need to buy another factory because we're trying to achieve growth, and, and we can't do it unless we buy the land," they're they're kind of um, handicapped in in a sense, will and and I think that many people do not talk about that in terms of how they analyze companies because the whole argument about many of the companies in Asia is there, you know, it's it's the parent company, and then there's gazillion subsidiaries you know and they're all doing non-core businesses and and it's extremely frustrating from an investor's perspective on why the company is 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 structured the way that it is but it's it's what the central banks of those countries are kind of like dictating to them so you know i i wanted to share that to you this in terms of an observation for the markets here but um overall yeah that's interesting yeah, I, I hope maybe we can talk yeah. about this sometime in the future as well because it, it affects how people should be looking at companies and, and investing in them. And and sometimes what happens in, in less developed markets is they, they argue that, well, the CEO has a fantastic track record and that you know he he's doing something that is relatively nationalistic to go out and buy a 1% equity stake in a football club, for example. But frankly, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And I'm actually trying to communicate that to um, Asian investors of, of capital markets or even institutional, multinational institutional investors um, into some of these companies just to say, hey, no, it doesn't have to be like that. And, and I genuinely believe there's an arbitrage that exists because if, if you can source the, the creditor to these you know, uh, foreign companies, then they don't have to be the way that they are. So the, I think that's a fantastic whole new market that no one's really addressing properly. You know, you have some private equity guys, you have some, uh, you know, fund management companies, but I, I, re, I genuinely believe that it's still not being addressed sufficiently. Yeah, I think. Well, I think that's right. I think. I mean, basically, I think you want a, a CEO who is going to look rationally at the capital markets and take advantage of dislocations and opportunities. So if debt is cheap and compelling and attractive, they'd look to take advantage of that. And 
if equity is similarly cheap, maybe they look at that, or you know, if if they have an opportunity to repurchase, they just want you want someone who's rational and opportunistic, um, right. and flexible. You know, Some, and, and it's um, hard though, Will, with like the the states as well playing a big role. If you look at a company like Gazprom, you'll say him. Well, you know, they're, they're, they have, their dividends yeah. is attractive, their valuation is attractive, but who's really, who's the CEO? Is it, is it Vladimir Putin or is it the actual CEO of the company in, in a situation? No, that's right. Every, that's right. Every case is different. Every case is different. And um, Gazprom is a very complicated, yeah. scary situation. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Will, for, for your time. I'm, I'm Hopefully sometime later in this year we can come back and take a review on, on how some these CEOs that you mentioned are doing. Thank you, Peter. Take care. Take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 